meted out in, uh, in different ways. Uh, I am reminded even as we prayed for our uh, men and women who uh, represent us there in Washington. Um, I'm reminded that uh, their, their task is difficult and hard uh, and God has sovereignly placed them there and that we should pray for them. And I'm reminded that uh, it oftentimes comes back knowingly affecting us directly uh, and folks close to us. And I'm uh, reminded that uh, Nancy a few weeks ago reached out to Senator Rubio, uh, who represents Florida, uh, on behalf of Dr. Francis, who is a friend of ours from Haiti, uh, a lady that we have been in contact with since the earthquake in Haiti. Uh, Dr. Francis was here, had her baby here, her husband was in Haiti. If you've been keeping up with things you know of the political unrest there in Haiti, he's not been able to see his child. She's been trying to get her visa extended. She's been trying to get him a visa so he could come. Uh, and in the course of that, Nancy reached out to Senator Rubio and started a process that uh, looks like will end, hopefully, uh, and our prayer is of her visa being extended so that she can stay and a visa for him so that he can come and be united with his family. And all of this is in the midst of a time when our borders are tightened uh, and um, a lot of folks and maybe even some of us here would agree that they need to be and yet there are times when in the course of justice, when trying to find what is right, uh, there are times for allowances and that's where uh, we pray for wisdom and kindness and goodness uh, and grace to be extended. And not just for us, but for others who work through uh, these hard times as well. So as we pray, understand that we are not praying just in general. Uh, but we are in fact praying for uh, real men and women who are serving us, who are having to deal with real life issues. Uh, it's not just politics. At the end of all of politics uh, is life uh, and the well-being of a nation, uh, which means the well-being of individuals. So continue to pray. If you have your Bibles, if you will, uh, let's turn to... Matthew chapter 11. This past week I've been considering some of uh, life's important questions. Uh, you know, you're asked these through various stages in your life. Some of you are being uh, asked that now. Uh, and some are repeated through certain seasons of life. Seasons when you are entering into a certain season of life and then you're asked when you're completing a certain season of life. Questions like, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Anyone ever ask you that? What do you want to be when you grow up? Some of you are saying, I, I don't want to grow up. Um, what are your interests? I ask that question a lot, particularly when I'm uh, speaking to students, what are your interests? Um, we know that one's important because oftentimes uh, determining our interests may determine a particular 
direction in life. It may help us know what we want to be when we grow up, uh, when we actually do grow up. Uh, another often asked question is, uh, what are your goals? What goals have you established? Uh, Tyler, have you been asked that? And uh, Yeah, I know you have. Uh, Mom and Dad may have even asked that question. What are your, what are your goals? And uh, those are important questions. And then the follow-up to that certainly would be after that question is asked is, is how are you doing with them? How are you meeting those goals? Are you, are, are you finding your way along in that direction? Um, of course, some set of circumstances has a bearing on any kind of question. Uh, I also thought about this week uh, a statement that I heard long ago, and that was that it's not, uh, it's not really the answer to the question that's important, it's the question. And for those who are asking questions, uh, that's true. You have to ask the right questions to get the answers that you're looking for. But that truth doesn't always hold. The answer is important, um, isn't it, Angie, when you're taking a test? Uh, the questions are important, but uh, the person who are being evaluated on their answers, the answers become uh, real important. So what are the most important things in life to know? What are the questions? What are the things that we ought to know? Well, for sure, for one who's navigating through a wilderness, the right direction is the most important thing. Don't, wouldn't you think so? Uh, the only thing more problematic uh, then going in the wrong direction is wandering around in a circle. You still would never get anywhere. You need to know the right direction. And moving in the right direction offers some, some sense of hope uh, that you'll come out of the wilderness, that you'll get through whatever it is that you are trying to get through. Uh, I'm reminded of that one time because I, I got lost in the woods. Uh, young boy, hunting. Got in a bay, I couldn't see the sun, I had no sense of direction, and because I was hunting, and I uh, hope this doesn't offend anyone, I had shot a deer, and the deer kept getting moving around, and I kept moving around through the bay, and wound up turning around, I don't know how many times, and uh, had no sense of direction. Uh, and I found myself wondering, which way do I, which way do I go? Now we... Right direction, having some sense of direction will help us in this. But the most important thing in all of life is knowing who Jesus is. That's the most important thing in all of life. And you may have expected such a statement. You didn't expect to hear anything different. I hope you didn't expect to hear anything different here at Oak Valley. Uh, and it may seem kind of uh, anticlimactic. It, in other words, it may be so predictable to hear that that it just goes over the top of our heads. Maybe we just are not stirred by that truth. The fact that knowing Jesus and who He is is the most important thing in life. I hope that's not the case. I hope it stirs us to think about, one, if we have trusted Christ that we have trusted Him because we know Him and we know Him and are grateful for that, understanding that that is the most important thing that we can know in all of life is who He is. And knowing who He is, we have trusted in Him. And if you're here today and you've not yet trusted Him, uh, I would tell you that the most important thing for you to know is who Jesus is. 
and in that uh, to turn to Him. Why? Our text this morning uh, helps us understand that. I want us to back back up to verse 20 of chapter 11. We looked at some of this scripture uh, last week, but I want us to look at it again because it sets the context for us to understand this invitation that we have already alluded to uh, if you have been following along in the worship guide. So look at verse 20. Then he began, meaning Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. We read this last week, and it does establish the context for today. I want you to pay attention to a few things in this text. Pay attention to the fact that Jesus openly denounced specific cities that had been given a great deal of evidence of who He is. And notice, uh, He had done many miracles in their presence. He states that. If these things had been done in other places, He had done many miracles. In other words, accompanying the message of repentance that He was preaching were the profound expressions of the power of God in the miracles He was performing. People were being healed. Demons were being cast out. Dead were being raised. Sight was being given to the blind. All of this is happening, and it appears that these were seemingly regular occurrences, so much so that the crowds would follow Jesus. Looking for what? Looking to be healed of their sicknesses, to have their sight restored, to see the lame walk. They were bringing all of these to Jesus. And we have already in Matthew's Gospel, we have acknowledged that even to the point that a group of men came to the house where Jesus was. And the house was so full of people looking for these kinds of miracles that they climbed up on top of the house, removed some of the ceiling tiles, and let their friend down in front of Jesus because they couldn't get to Jesus because the house was full of people. We've already looked at an instance where uh, the accompanying text in Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus is traveling to go help a man whose daughter is about to die. In fact, we know she was at the point of death because she passes away before Jesus gets there because He was held up by the crowds of people that were flocking around Him. And in the midst of those crowds, there was one woman who had an issue of blood that just was able to get to touch the hem of His garment. Just to touch Him. And in that was healed. But the point is, is that all of these people were coming to Jesus. And Jesus all along the way was pointing to the fact that He was the Son of God. He was preaching the message of repentance and He was showing profound evidence of the power of God. And it was frequent and it was ongoing. And these cities had seen it 
more than any of the other cities. And don't miss this. Because they had, and because they had not repented, Jesus condemns them. There are at least three things I believe that we need to see here. You've heard it before, but let's hear it again today. Repentance is the defining mark of those who have savingly encountered Jesus. Repentance. That is a turning to Him, abandoning of self, turning away from sin, acknowledging sin. All along the way, Jesus here is doing these miracles and He is giving evidence of the fact that He is God. And all along the way, He is doing it for the sake of the souls of people turning to God, repenting. The point is, is that in Christ, the Lord, God, was in their presence. When we encounter the Lord, the only saving response is that of repentance. In Luke chapter 5, we hear on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of uh, Gennesaret and he saw two boats uh, at the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, uh, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. A miracle. Simon comes into the presence of God and this is what he experiences. And what was his response? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He didn't want Jesus to leave him because he didn't want Jesus. He understood that he was not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. Isaiah had a similar experience. We see in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is in the throne room of God and what do we hear? When he encounters God in his glory, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah recognizes his sinfulness as he comes into the presence of God. And there is this spirit of confession and repentance. Understanding that we have encountered God. But that wasn't the case with Chorazin. It wasn't the case with Capernaum. It wasn't the case with Bethsaida. No, they encountered the presence of God and they were unrepentant. The other thing that I think that we can see in this text is that the greater the witness one is given, the greater responsibility that person has or that city has or that group of people. I think we mentioned that last week. But just to be reminded again that the more that God 
shows us of Himself. And He has completely unveiled Himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have heard the Gospel repeatedly, for those of us who have access to the Scriptures, for those of us whom the Spirit of God has spoken to, then our responsibility is great. And we don't know how all of that measures out in the course of eternity, except in this case, we do realize and recognize that it played a significant part in the condemnation that Christ placed upon these cities because they had been given evidence of who He was. And they had not repented. I think there's a warning there for us. Is that as we hear the Word of God, as we repeatedly are brought into the presence of God in the revelation that God has given us in His Word, that it bears upon us and we are responsible for what we've heard. And I'll mention here briefly because it's of theological importance, but I believe Jesus intends in this to help us know something of the sovereignty of God. Don't you think? Notice that Jesus brings into view the what if. Now we are always talking about what if. We say, well, what if this and what if that? But God's knowledge is so vast that He knows every possibility, even those he has a willed. In history, this has been termed at times as the middle knowledge of God. Uh, and it has been used to argue wrongly, I believe, uh, and in, with an intent to elevate man's free will above the sovereign rule of God. Uh, the argument has been that uh, since God knows all the possibilities, He chose the circumstances uh, in which man exercises his free will in a manner that somehow or another is consistent with God's plan. This particularly became prevalent about midway through the 16th century. Does God know all the possibilities? I believe so. If not, here we have God. We have God incarnate talking about possibilities that were not willed by God. Well, what does it tell us? Well, that God knows all things. This is particularly important as we look at the next thing that Jesus is going to say. But God knows all things. Nora, this is for you. Okay? This knowledge is known as His natural or necessary knowledge, such as, and I asked Nora this morning, I said, what do you know? And she said, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know. I said, well, what do you know? She said, at two plus two. I said, two plus two what? She said, equals four. I said, I'm going to use that in the sermon. It is God knowing, Nora, that two plus two equals four and that the whole is greater than the part. God knows all things. And God knows what He has willed and what He has decreed. And that's the point. And because God was the only one who could say what if in this case, He does. He said, if this had happened, then Sodom would have repented, though they didn't. That Tyre would have repented, and that Sidon would have repented, though they didn't. Jesus was simply pointing to the sovereignty of God. 
So we have Jesus displaying His power, showing who He is, indicating His identity, and what happened? It was rejected. What do we hear? They did not repent. Now Jesus does something that is incredibly important. He gives an explanation for why the people are indifferent to His existence. And in the explanation, He models for us how to respond to God's sovereignty. Notice that after He condemns these cities because of their unrepentance, Jesus prays this prayer. And look, if you will, in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Notice what Jesus does. He acknowledges His relationship with God. He calls Him Father. He addressed Him as Father. Then He acknowledges that His Father is sovereign over everything in heaven and in earth. His sovereignty extends to the fact that He conceals some things and He reveals some things, specifically those things that are necessary to know who He is. Third, Jesus thanks Him for this work. Notice what He says, I thank you, Father. I thank Him for what? He says, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. The fourth thing that we see is that Jesus calls this work gracious. Look at what He says. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Fifth, Jesus stated that it is the will of God. That is that God is the one who has brought this about. God makes it happen. Booney alluded to it earlier. As he talked about and as we have looked at and as we've sung already, that salvation alone from God is He's at the beginning of it and He's at the end of it. He accomplishes those things. Why press in on that? Because Scripture presses in on that. Why is that important? For us to see the magnitude and the glory of the grace of God. And the sixth thing we see is, is that Jesus shows that there is a difference in people. He distinguishes between those who deem themselves as sufficient. He calls them the wise and understanding. And those who see themselves as dependent. He calls those the little children. Look back in Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment. We didn't spend a lot of time there when we were in that part of Scripture. But I want you to hear and see the difference between the people. Jesus distinguishes between those who are wise and understanding 
and then those whom He calls the little children. Who's He talking about? Well, He's talking about those who are self-sufficient, who believe themselves to be okay. Those who believe themselves to be on a path that is not through Christ, that is not about Christ. Those who have, are seeking, and we're going to see this even more as we press into the text coming, but looking at those who are are seeking to find their way to God or just completely ruling out the fact that there's a God because they are so prideful in and of their own ability to take care of themselves and those who are dependent. And yet in Matthew chapter 5, what do we hear at the very beginning and what we know as the Beatitudes? And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, speaking of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do any of those sound like it would in any way fit self-sufficiency any of those sound at all like they would fit that of being prideful no i don't think so in fact all i see there is lowly dependent needy lowly dependent needy just as children are the children realize that they are dependent upon their parents it's only in their sinfulness and their pride because they are born into that state that they come to begin to want to assert their own independence along the way. And some of that independence certainly for our growing up and going out into the world uh, is, is, is understandable as it should be. But there is a pressing and a pushing against in our sinfulness of our independence our lack of a need of help, a pushing against the authority. Remember, we have already talked about and laid the groundwork for the authority that is in Christ. God Himself stands as Christ has pointed to Him as being the one over heaven and earth as He says, this is my Father and He's praying. And He said, the one who is over heaven and earth. In other words, there is this supreme authority and Jesus has pointed back to those as He has revealed Himself to them and shown Himself to them in the power that they have pushed back against that. They have repented. They, they have rejected Him and they haven't repented. What's the point? Jesus didn't question God's authority to conceal and reveal. Notice He doesn't do that. He didn't draw into question God's goodness or sense of fairness and all of this that God has done towards salvation. Notice he doesn't do that. He didn't presuppose that everyone was neutral and in some way was deserving of revelation. No, what does he do? Well, just look back at his prayer again and see what he does. He just simply acknowledges and says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
Period. He stops there. He doesn't try to give any more explanation for it. That truth holds now just as it did then. And Jesus demonstrated for us what our response should be to God. What should it be? Thank you, Father, for your grace. For such is your will. Now, he goes another step. Look at verse 27. Then he says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now you see the backdrop for him making the statement that he has done in condemnation. Now you see why all of this is important because Jesus had stood in the presence of this, these cities, these people, and had given demonstration for who he was. Had pointed them to repentance and turning to God had revealed to them the power and the presence of God. He had shown them these things and they had not repented. And then Jesus says this of Himself. He says, I am the Son of God. Please know this. The most important thing that any person can know and that is who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. Notice what else he says. He is the one whom God has handed over everything. He's handed to His Son everything. Let's hear about some of that. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Those are the things that have been given to Him, all things. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is everything and everything. He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He's been given all authority. We'll press into this later in our study in Matthew. But in Matthew chapter 28, we hear Him say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. He has been given those whom He will save. John chapter 17, I have manifested, Jesus is praying to the Father, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
speaking to the Father. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep me in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What has he been given? He has been given Everything, everything has been handed to him. Everything, every right has been handed to him. Thus, he is able to say what? He says to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What is he saying? He's the only one through whom one may come to know God. He is the only one through whom a person can come to know God. Notice that Jesus chooses those whom He will reveal the Father. Now this is important. It's important for a lot of reasons, but particularly what happens next. Because now he extends an invitation. And this particular invitation is only recorded in Matthew's Gospel. He invites those who labor and are heavy burdened or heavy laden to come to him. Let's hear it. In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He invites those who are laboring a heavy burden to come to him. Who's he talking about? Who are these people? Well, they're the same persons that he referred to earlier as little children. There is a sense in which every person, to some degree, is pushing and laboring to make their own way. The difference is, is that there are those who come to the end of that and realize that my labor is in vain. My labor is in vain. Those who come to realize and to know and to understand by Jesus revealing Himself to them that this will never satisfy me. To realize that I am not sufficient in this endeavor to get to God. And there is a sense in which every person knows that in some way. But what does He mean by those who labor and are heavy burdened? He's referring to those who are weary trying to earn their righteousness and the right to come to God. Those who have been burdened down with demands made by other religions or religious leaders trying desperately to earn 
their salvation. And He's calling those who have abandoned religious posturing and those who long for rest. Rest from what? Rest from pretending. Rest from guilt. Rest from the bondage of religion. He's not just calling those who are hurting. Listen, they are hurting, but there's a world full of hurting people who want their hurt taken away, but who are not at all desiring to submit to the loving Father and to His Son. There's a world full of sick people, hungry people, desperate people, people who are in tremendous agony, but they don't want God. They want to be freed from the pain. They want to be freed from the suffering. They want to be lifted out of the bondage of debt. They want to get rich. They want to get well. They want to be happy. They want to be all these things. But they don't want God. They don't want Christ. They don't want what He has to say next. Because then the next things He says, notice, after He says, Come to Me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The next thing He says makes no sense in the context of rest. Seemingly. What does he say? Then he said, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Now here's the quandary. He's promising rest. And if that's the case, why does he even bring up the issue of a yoke? Most of us, I think, maybe know what a yoke is. And we're not talking about the yellow part of an egg. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a type of a harness, if you will, that is made for a beast of burden to get in uh, that enables them to direct their energy and force with the person who is commanding them so that they can be productive and work. Uh, back Oh my goodness, I don't know, some years ago, a lot of years ago, over 20 years ago, I guess now, uh, we were up in uh, New Hampshire, and we were up there working with a church planner up there. And as I was going to, to a supply store one day, driving down a mountain road and a country road, I, I happened to see a pair of ox that were in, that were yoked together. Uh, and I stopped, and these, and literally, these beasts, their back was as tall as, was as high as my head. When I looked at them, the back was at eye level. And these great big beasts of burden were there, and there was a 13-year-old boy uh, who was guiding this pair of oxen, and he was pulling a sled with them, and he actually competed uh, with them. Uh, with giving them the commands, this little boy in control of these two massive animals. Uh, and I looked at their yoke and he told me how it had been made and it had been made especially for them. And it was this big wooden yoke. And then coming off of that yoke were chains that ran to this big heavy sled that they pulled. The point is, is that that doesn't sound like rest. 
Uh, when we mention a harness, a yoke, we are thinking of work, or at least that's what most of us think of. So what is he talking about? Jesus points us to this because he wants us to ask the question, what work must I do to get this rest? What is the work that he is speaking of? If he says that he's going to give rest, but then he says, take my yoke upon you, what work is it that he's talking about? Well, in John chapter 6 and verse 29, he said, this is the work of God. Hear it. This is the work of God. Believe in Him who He has sent. That's the work. Believe. Faith is the work. In John 15, 4, he said, this work is abide in me. Abide in me, like a branch abides in the vine. Believe, abide, trust. And that's all the work God requires. That's it. That's all that He is saying. He says, just trust in me. So, let's back back up. What took place with Chorazin? What took place with Bethsaida? What took place with Capernaum. They saw evidence of the power of God and they rejected Christ and would not trust in Him. Did not trust in Him. Therefore, they didn't find rest. Couldn't find rest. They were not going to find rest. That's the yoke that Jesus calls us to. We're not here today. Hopefully you don't feel like, I, I hope you don't. I hope you don't feel like that you are laboring here in some way to earn your righteousness to be able to get to God. I hope you didn't get up this morning and think, well, man, if I don't go to church, I don't know what in the world God's going to think of me. I hope you didn't serve someone this past week wondering if somehow or another I don't do this for this person that, that I'm not going to make it to heaven. I hope you didn't get up this past week and pray or, or, or work on your scripture memory or, or, or read the Bible or, or work through your devotional plan in fear of somehow if I don't do this, I am not going to make it to heaven. I hope none of you attended CDM or YDM. I hope none of you went to uh, the, the youth get-together last night because you felt like if, if somehow or another I don't go, then, then God's going to look at me with a jaundice eye that I have to prove myself to Him. I hope that's not the case. It was never intended by Christ for that to be the case. No, He just simply said, get into the yoke of faith and believe. And in that, find rest. In other words, exchange this heavy yoke of the burden of sin, the heavy yoke of trying to make your way on your own in your sufficiency 
which you will fail. Exchange that. Exchange that for my yoke. I bore the burden for your sin. I went to the cross. Of course, at this time, in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is making this statement, He had not yet gone to the cross. But He was going. He was going. All of the Old Testament prophets, as we saw last week, were pointing to that. The law was pointing to that. And He had not yet gone there. By the time Matthew records these things, He had already gone to the cross had been raised from the dead, and they were looking back on it. And Matthew was reminding them again by virtue of these words that the Holy Spirit had given to him, recalling these accounts that all he is saying is trust in him. Believe. Jesus takes our inconceivably and unbearably heavy yoke of condemnation and penalty. And He offers us in exchange an easy yoke, a light burden of trusting Him. It has been said that He does all the work and we get all the rest. Notice what He says then. He says then, learn from Me. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. What is it that He wants us to learn? Learn to be gentle like Him. Learn to be lowly. Learn to be submissive. Learn to suffer. Learn to rest. Learn to trust. And oh yeah, by the way, learn to praise and worship. Remember, he prayed earlier, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And then he goes on to conclude, for such was your gracious will. I want us to conclude today by being reminded of what the author of Hebrews told us. Because this is what Jesus was saying. And I'm reminded of this because Booney continues as we have met, we evaluate what we're doing, how we're going, what we do here each Sunday. And Booney, you've said it even this past week again. We continue to look to Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Believe. Abide. Trust in. That is, in fact, the light yoke that Jesus has put on us. And you know what else? Notice what He says. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light you will find rest for your souls. Now, I think we have, maybe not for the first time,
hopefully a reminder for some, but maybe some for the first time, we have some sense of what he meant when he said, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, I need rest. I think we all today could probably, most of us anyway, could say, boy, I sure would love some physical rest. I, I sure would love just some mental rest. Man, I sure would love a break and all this emotional stuff that I'm dealing with. I want emotional rest. I, I will tell you that all of that comes when we find the ultimate rest that Jesus was pointing to. And that was is the spiritual rest. When we quit laboring to earn our salvation, when we quit laboring because we feel like that that's what it takes to get to God and to please Him, and acknowledge our dependency upon Him and then just rest because we trust in Him.